0: Thank you for listening once more to the ministry of Let the Bible
1: Speak. In recent broadcasts we've been considering the subject of personal praying in the book of Psalms and very often we've noted that the psalmist is praying in times of trouble and affliction. And with that in mind, I thought it would be good to broadcast an excerpt from a sermon based on James chapter 5. In this sermon and in the text we find that James deals with the subject of Christian patience What does patience look like? How do we characterize it? It's one of those words that is certainly used differently today than it was used in the time of the scriptures. So I'm going to read from James chapter 5, from the verse number 7. And may God indeed be pleased to bless his word. James 5 verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure, and ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Amen. Thus speaks the word of the Lord. And so in these verses, we see that there are three examples given of patience. There is, in reverse order, the example of Job, then the example of the prophets. And then, first of all, there was the example of the husbandman or the farmer. What we'll see in our studies today is that these three examples give us a very full, orbed and comprehensive understanding of what is expected of us as Christians in the realm of Christian patience. What we also see and must understand is that this patience has as its focus the Lord's return. Many times in the text James has mentioned the coming of the Lord or the Lord coming as judge or the judge standing before the door. And so keep that in mind, we are living in this world waiting for Christ's return and in the meantime we have to be patient, we have to understand what it means to be patient and it's my prayer that God will help you to understand that through this broadcast today. Let's pray before we come to the word of the Lord, let's pray and ask for God's help as we consider the scriptures today. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank you once more for the a living in the inerrant word of God. And we pray for those who will listen today that this would be a blessing to their souls, help them to rightly understand the word of God as they would consider this subject of Christian patience and help us all to live for you in a challenging time. We do wait for the Lord's return. And in the meantime, we pray for grace, and the grace that we need to live for Christ. And so bless your word to your hearts today. Bless all who will listen. We do pray and ask these things. In the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's look at these three examples of patience. Patience. How do you define patience? What does patience look like in your life? What does it look like in your home life, in your work life, in your church life? Well, I think you'll have different answers to that question what is striking, at least to me, it was striking, is the three examples that are given here. Actually, give us a very rounded view of what patience looks like in its fullness, not just in one particular area, but it's in its fullness. First of all, we have the example of the husbandman, verse number seven, or the farmer. He has patience in the sense that he is, he's in no hurry. That's one of the ways patience manifests itself. He understands the necessity of waiting for both rainy seasons to occur. Uh, this is an agricultural image that has a very much Palestinian theme. It's not so familiar in our uh, setting, but there were two rainy seasons. There was an early rain around October that was useful to prepare the soil and allow the seed to germinate. Then a later, a later rain around March time that allowed the seed to, if you like, to plump up and to flourish into full maturity. And the husbandman is patient. He's, he's in no hurry through those winter montinos that it's, it's for his good to wait for the latter rains. That's what it says here, isn't it? The husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early, and if I can add the, uh, they add the implication, and also the latter reign. And we're told, be ye also patient. Now, in what sense is the Christian to be patient in this sense? In what way are we not to be in a hurry? This actually is more challenging than you might think. The context is the Lord's coming. Is it right for the Christian not to be, if you like, in a hurry for the Lord's return? Well, there's one aspect of this in which we are rightly to be patient for the Lord to do his work in our lives. Christian maturity takes time and we're right to wait for the Lord to work in our lives individually. That's true in a sense. The Lord is working in our souls. But for the individual believer, we also understand that Christ's coming accelerates our maturity to completion. We say, even so, come Lord Jesus so in, in what sense are we to be patient in the language of James chapter 5? Well, let me suggest to you, it is that we are not to be in a hurry for Christ's coming because we are waiting for the church to be completed. We are waiting for the, we're waiting for the precious fruits of Christ's kingdom to come to pass. Therefore, the church why we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, we do so in the understanding that we want and we expect every single elect soul to be gathered in. And thus we wait. Because God is also waiting in that sense, isn't he? This word for the husbandman has the sense of being long-suffering. And is the Lord not being long-suffering in that sense? Second Peter chapter 3? He's not slack concerning his promise but it's long-suffering not that any should perish he's waiting for the church to be fulfilled like the husband man is and so we are to be christ-like we're to be god-like in this patience and i i must pause and give a word of exhortation to your souls do not be impatient in the midst of all the sin of this world It is frustrating. It is difficult. We see such wickedness all around us. And we want it all to be wrapped up as soon as possible. But be also patient. Wait for the latter rains. Allow God to perform his perfect will in his perfect time. So that the church of Christ does not lack one single living stone. We we know it's not possible. But at the same time, we are exhorted here to be patient. that's the farmer what about the prophets well they're mentioned in verse number 10 uh, explicitly told we're told to take them as an example of suffering affliction and of patience verse 10 the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord their patience here is not so much as not being in a hurry as it is patience in being long suffering Long-suffering is the word that's used here. I have these words that are combined in the original text that have the sense of largeness, of temper, longness, of patience, a long fuse, not a short, short fuse when it comes to those people that annoy and trouble and perplex. This is particularly relevant, of course, to those who James is writing to. They're, they're suffering by the, in the hands of the rich and they're, they're told, no. Remember the prophets, be long suffering. Uh, there are people, let's be honest, there are people in our lives that annoy us. Be, be honest about it. I, I can't imagine that none of you have somebody in your life that doesn't cause you some degree of irritation. It's tempting to have a short fuse, isn't it? It's tempting to blow up, to retaliate, to complain, to bring dissent. Well, here, The prophets are those who stand as an example of suffering affliction. And their affliction is so much greater than our trivial petty annoyances. It is tragic that the people in the church cannot cannot cope with petty annoyances. Without getting irritated and dissenting and complaining. I think that's part of what he's getting at in verse number 9. We'll come to that in a future study. The prophet was one who suffered often at the hands of his countrymen. You think of the Lord's teaching in Luke chapter 11. Just to read this one here, let me read these words to you. Therefore it also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Here's the Lord's testimony of the prophets who suffered. Stephen said, which of the prophets have you have not your fathers persecuted? Acts chapter 7, verse number 52. You go through them all. You think of Elijah chased around the country, as it were, by a wicked woman. You think of Micaiah and Ahab. Oh, Ahab hated Micaiah and said, put this fellow in the prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and with water of affliction. These are men that suffered. And they didn't complain, or retaliate, or take things into their own hands. This is patience in the light of persecution, and suffering, and trouble. Now, those of you who know your Bibles, and I know you all know your Bibles well, will think, well, what about Jeremiah? Do we see Jeremiah as one who exercised long-suffering? Let me show you this. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. I, just, I don't want you to have anything in your mind that would excuse you from the responsibility to be long-suffering in the midst of great trials in a wicked world. The people of God do suffer and will more than likely suffer more in the days to come. And this exhortation to be long-suffering, I believe, will be more and more pertinent in the coming times. And so we see Jeremiah... In the chapter 18 and the verse number 18. What do they do? They say, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. That's actually mild. Things get worse for Jeremiah. And what does he do? He says in verse 19, Give heed to me, O Lord. And hearken to the voice of them that contend with me. Shall evil be recompensed for good, for they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them, and to turn away their wrath from them. Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine. And pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives be bereaved of their children, and be widows. Let their men be put to death. Let their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when they shall bring a troop suddenly upon them. For they have digged a pit to take me and hid snares from my feet. Yet, Lord, thou knowest all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity, neither blot out their sin from thy sight. But let them be overthrown before thee. Deal with them in the time of thine anger. Take the prophets. As an example of patience and suffering affliction. This is one of the most startling, imprecatory prayers in all the scriptures. Praying down judgment upon the heads of those who would seek to harm Jeremiah. So in what sense can we say that he is patient and long-suffering? Well, this is the important application to this point. He leaves The matter with the Lord. In the midst of all the afflictions, he turns it over to the Lord. He does not take things into his own hands. He's prepared to get on his face before God and say, Lord, here they are. And in the prayers that he offers, he's really praying. He's praying covenantal curses upon those who were his brethren. He's praying the word of God back to God. And so we have the obligation According to Paul in Romans chapter twelve, to recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Did he be loved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For as written, vengeance is mine; I will repay, saith the Lord. That's the example of suffering affliction that the prophets give us. Suffering affliction and being long suffering in the face of sin, is not a denial of justice. If you are to be a patient Christian, long-suffering in the midst of persecution, it does not mean that you're trampled over. Because you expect justice. And you join the company of the martyrs who cry out, How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And so store this word up in your hearts when you suffer for Christ's sake, when you suffer for the sake of the gospel, remember, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And be long-tempered, be long-suffering, not quick to complain and retaliate, but have that gracious, patient spirit. The farmer, he's in no hurry. The prophet is given to being long-suffering. And then Job. Job's mentioned then in verse Number eleven. Behold, we count them happy which endure. I'll come back to that, and then it says, "Ye have heard of the patience of Job." It's, it's a statement, is not it? It's a statement of fact. We, we have we use it even in our language today. You know the patience of Job, and yet here it is so often misused. The patience of Job is often used to defend what I've just said regarding the prophets' long suffering. Patient, do you like, phlegmatic of spirit. But James changes the word here for patience. We, we lose it in our authorized version. We lose the transition that's very clear in the original. In the earlier verses, there is this word for long patience, long suffering. And then you get to James and you get to chapter 5, verse 11. And the word changes and it becomes the word for endurance. And so significant is this change that we should not miss it. Nothing stopped James, if I say, humanly speaking, from continuing the theme of being long-suffering. Rather, he deliberately changes his tact and he says to the people, remember Job for his endurance. And the sense seemed to be the long-suffering is in the face of opposition of others, but endurance is in the face of affliction. In the affliction that comes in this life. Endurance. How do we respond to afflictions in this world? Well, yes, by being long-suffering like the prophets. Yet that's a very passive thing. The word here that's used is a very active word. It speaks of a deliberate, determined endurance and faith. We know that because it's used. You could turn back to Hebrews chapter 12 and you'll see the same word used there. By the way, James has used this word for patience or endurance in chapter 1 with regards to your testing. The trying of your faith worketh patience, endurance. This idea of being tested, but in Hebrews chapter 12... You have the exhortation that we're to run with patience, the race that is set before us. This is not a passive word. You do not run a race lying on your back. It's active, it's energetic. You, you're running with endurance, and the thought is you're not giving up. The example of Christ is given who for the joy that was set before him. Patience, the cross, endured the cross. The same thought, the same words being used. So here we are to see something of an active endurance in faith. You see, please turn back to Job chapter 1. If James would say to his writers, you've seen and know the patience of Job, well, let's turn back and look very briefly at Job. We're not going to look at the whole book, of course. But it is significant. If you are to understand Job as a book, you've got to appreciate verse number 9 of chapter 1. It's the key verse to understand the rest. Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for not? That's the accusation. What does that mean? It has the sense the devil's accusing Job through the Lord that Job is only in the business of faith for what he gets out of it. If you take it all. He will not endure. That's the point. He won't endure in faith. If everything's gone from him, he'll give up. That's why, again, what his wife says to Job is so significant. Chapter 2, verse number 9. Thus thou still retain thine integrity. Curse God and die. She buys in to the devil's lie. You've lost everything. Where's God in your life now? Curse God and die. But Job, he endures to the end and is saved. You see, you look over at Job chapter one and the verse number twenty. What does he say? Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, Naked came out of, the earth of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job, sin not nor charge God foolishly. Now later on, Job has some challenges, some struggles. The path of endurance is a faltering path that sometimes we go forward, we, we slip, we trip, and we tumble, and we struggle to keep going. But Job, he keeps on enduring. And so he gives a word of testimony in chapter 13, in the verse number 5. So the wrong text here, but though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. It's verse number 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Here is Job standing the test of faith. His faith is being put to the test, put to the trial. And by God's grace, he endures to the end. The devil is a liar from the beginning. And he's lying about Job. And Job keeps on believing. He endures in faith despite the affliction. Verse number 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure, ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. How you translate these words will often govern how you interpret them. And here I'm very thankful how the authorized version have kept this text as it is. They've referred to the end of the Lord. The word end here is a word that's used in different forms elsewhere with a thought of completion, of full maturity. And it refers to God's, God's aim, God's purpose, God's goal. Not just the end of the occasion, but rather God's purpose that governs all of these things. What we're seeing here is that God's works are marked by the fact that he is very pitiful or compassionate and he's of tender mercy. Job, he saw the mercy and the compassion of God. The reason I mention my delight in how it's worded here is because far too many people read it incorrectly and they subconsciously read it this way you have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of Job and they read Job and they get to the closing chapters and they get to chapter 42 for example and in chapter 42 in the verse number 10 it says this and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before there you go there's the end of Job And they insert that into James chapter 5 as being the end of the Lord. Falsely teaching that God is only compassionate in chapter 42. We must not presume that in Job chapter 1 and 2 God is being cruel and lacking compassion and tender mercy. And yet how often we fall into that trap, don't we? We see God's compassion in chapter 42. And without expressing it verbally, we hold on to the notion that God is not compassionate in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and all the rest of the book. And what the end of Job is, he comes to understand the Lord. He says this, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye see of thee. He's come to understand the goodness and the compassion and the tenderness of God's, Because God is good even in our afflictions. And God is good for us all the time. James chapter 5 teaches us that the purpose of God, the goal of God, the aim of God is always marked by his pitifulness, his compassion and his tender mercy. God always has a goal. He does nothing aimlessly. And his goal is the glory of his name in the display of his grace. That's his goal. That his name is glorified as his grace is displayed. And such a goal was proven at Calvary. Where God was good as his son suffers and patiently endures the cross. And so, if God is good in the darkness of Calvary, God is good in the darkness of your life today. You cannot fail to be good. Will not fail to be good. Because He's working all things together for the glory of His name. In this way of grace, in the final goodness shown to the church.